So our uh, scripture reading for this morning and our meditation is going to be on Psalms uh, 119, 97 through 104. And I'll be reading from ESV, but uh, here we go. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from evil, every evil way, in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And I thought this was just an excellent meditation on meditation, really. Um, the psalmist is reminding us that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that his ways are higher than our ways, and that his words are perfect. And in many ways, it's kind of like we've been given the answers to the test, right? So, uh, but it'll be most effective uh, and most useful and helpful if we take the time to study them, to learn them, uh, to become intimately familiar with the word of God. And yes, that is to meditate on them. Uh, so when the time comes and we are forced with one of life's test questions, uh, the answers are in our hearts and not just in a book on the shelf. All right. If you'd open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, and we'll be starting in verse 18, Mark 12, 18. And we're going to be following with uh, the sermon series that John has been preaching on. He's uh, just in the last several weeks, he talked about how Jesus came into the temple, he upended the tables, he, he brought reform to the temple worship system. People were not happy about the situation, their money was thrown on the ground, the animals were opened out and released, and everything they were doing was frustrated. And then there was a series of questions that people have come to him trying to trip him up. Last, last week, the Pharisees were there trying to um, cause Jesus to stumble, and this week it's the Sadducees. So if you're having trouble remembering all of these religious leaders and who they were and what they did, at college we had this method to remember the Sadducees. And so in verse 18, it says some Sadducees, and Mark informs us very nicely because today we don't know who the Sadducees are, but he says, who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him. So in college, when we had to fill in that blank on the test, the one that we didn't have the answers for, we were like, okay, the Sadducees, the way to remember the Sadducees is they don't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad, you see. Pretty, it was pretty novel. I think every college, Bible college student used that in America. So the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They were kind of an aristocratic, maybe rich. We, we don't know a lot about them. They were, they were kind of a Jewish sect for about 200 years, around 73 AD at the fall of Jerusalem, they stopped existing. We don't have Sadducees today, but um, they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in spirits. Um, they, were, they only believed in the Torah, which is the, the five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It was the written word of God that Moses brought down from the mountain. Everything after that, the, the uh, historical information, the prophets, they did not believe that was God's word. And so they were very influential in the temple. They were influential in, in some of the things that were happening around the time of Jesus. And so here they are, these, these religious leaders questioning Jesus. They, they don't believe in the resurrection, and they, they bring up this teaching from Moses. It says in verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Um, that may not be a practice many of us are familiar with today. How many of you, <laughs> as, a, as a kid, is thinking, I'm glad I'm the oldest brother, you know? If, if <laughs> I, I wouldn't want my brother to go off and get married and die and then have to marry his wife to, to make sure he has children, right? So it was, it was one of those things, we don't see it today. But it's, it was called the leverate, leverate practice, that lever is brother-in-law. And it was a, a, a law that if your brother were to die, just as they quoted in Deuteronomy, um, the, the next oldest brother was responsible to make sure the name of that brother would carry on by giving him a child. And so I'm going to go to Deuteronomy really quick. You can turn there if you'd like. 
Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. And we're going to get into the question pretty soon about, oops, let me go back one. About what the Sadducees are going to try to trip Jesus up on. But first we're going to talk about what is this lever at marriage? You know, they, they, they give the basics of it, but why would, why would God create this obscure rule, you know? And you, you read through the Deuteronomy and, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you read some of the things there, and you're like, man, some of these rules seem so bizarre. You know, you have, you have laws that are kind of universal. It's universally expected that God doesn't want people to murder each other, right? That's understood. There's only one God, and you should worship only him. You shouldn't steal from people. Those are kind of universal and then there is another set of laws that dealt with the temple and the tabernacle, kind of sacrificial laws. So they'd bring bulls and sheep, and they had to be perfect. They had to be the firstborn. They had to be without blemish, and they would sacrifice their blood. And their blood being sacrificed and shed was the way to appease all of the sins of the community of Israel at that time. And in the New Testament, that sacrificial system is now realized through Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. His blood was shed. And through faith in him, we have forgiveness of our sins. It's, and it's this one-time perfect sacrifice, whereas the animal sacrifice was year after year after year. And so you'll see a lot of laws and rules about the sacrificial system in the, in the nation of Israel that are defined. You know, we don't practice many of those things because Jesus completed that work. And then there was another set of laws that was for the people of Israel, specifically for the kingdom of Israel. And those were some of them were to distinguish them from the locals. You know, you, you're, the local population does this stuff. You can't do that. You have to be separate from them. The circumcision was one of those things that was reinstituted. Like, you're going to be markedly different than your neighbors. And this is a covenant that shows you're my people. And so it was marked in their flesh. And then there were a whole bunch of other laws. You know, basically in the New Testament, you can, you can sum up what God was trying to give to Israel in those laws as, you know, love God with all your heart, love your neighbors yourself. Now, it would have been nice if all of Deuteronomy and was just those two verses, but you know how people are. Um, they're going to say, well, what does it really mean to love my neighbor as myself? Well, what happens if this happens, or what happens if that happens? And so you have laws that basically are trying to help Israel in relationship to itself, but they're also to help them realize the promise of moving into the promised land that God has given them. You know, when they, when they went in, he's like, here's the land, I'm going to separate it all out for you. Judah, you're going to live in this area, and Simeon, you're going to be up in this area. And in that, he, he said, this is your inheritance forever. And in giving them an inheritance, he set up some specific rules to help the people be fair and just with each other. So one of them was this leveret marriage thing. So Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, says, When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. So, so you can see my concern earlier, like I'm glad I was the oldest brother. There's possibly concern about marrying your brother's wife after he's died, even back then. But listen to what, how compulsory this was. In verse 8 in Deuteronomy 25, it says, Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him, and if he, if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed." So pretty strict rule here. It's not like we, we would really like your brother's name to continue if you'd like to. No, if you refuse to take your brother's wife, you are going to be humiliated in front of all the leaders of Israel. You will be a marked name. Uh, you know, there's a lot of peer pressure here to do the right thing. 
And, you know, when, a couple of things through this passage, you realize that it's really important to God that the people that he's blessed and called by his name that is inheriting their, this land, that their name will continue. That the sons who are born to their fathers, that they will not only have an inheritance of living in the land, but they'll also have a heritage of children. And those children will live on their property. And then they'll be raised up and they'll have children and children and children. This was part of the blessing. It wasn't just occupation of land, but it was also heritage of children. Like he said to Abraham, your children will be like the stars of the sky that you can't even count. And so this was, this was a really important passage to protect the name of the person who lived in Israel. What, a, what an amazing thing. And so, sorry about that. So back in Mark, we're going to see what the what the Sadducees are curious about. Chapter twelve, verse eighteen, Mark twelve eighteen, um, continuing verse nineteen or twenty actually. So, so after the Sadducees quoted this verse from Deuteronomy twenty five, they say so. Tell them a story. This is the basis of their question. There were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. So <laughs> the Sadducees who do not believe in her resurrection are asking Jesus a trick question, a gotcha question, to try to trip him up and no matter how he answers this question, he's going to be a foul with somebody. So there's, there's about four different ways that I can think of that you could answer this question of the Pharisees. Well, she'd be married to the first husband, right? He was the first one. All the others married the wife because of the firstborn, right? So that would be one option. Or the last one was the last one married to her, so he's, he was the last one married, so in heaven he would be married to her or pick one of the five in between for some reason, or most egregiously immoral, possibly and terrible, is that he's married to all, or she's married to all seven of them in heaven. So pick one of those four options. Could, could you imagine if heaven was filled with, like now I'm married to two people because one of them died and now I'm married again and then how confusing that could be. And so the Sadducees, who do not believe in the resurrection, figured they, they had come up with this scenario that could totally discount that if, if God were all-powerful and he had done this thing, he would never have set up the lever of marriage if there was really a resurrection because he would never put a person in a situation where they would be multiple men would be married to a single woman, right? That, that's, God would never do something that crazy. And so they figure they've got Jesus. He's, he's not going to be able to answer this. Um, similar, similar to all the other questions, they thought they had him. They thought they had some complicated thing in the law that was going to trip him up. Because the Sadducees, again, believe in and only the Pentateuch, the five books of the law. Um, they, they profess that there's no place in those five books where God expressly and explicitly said that there was a resurrection, that God raised someone up from the dead and they were alive again. And they're like, it's not said in the five books. You can't take it from any of the other books of the, what you say are the Bible. Therefore, prove, prove to us what's going on here. And so uh, Jesus is always so amazing and wise in how he responds to these religious leaders. Um, he said to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? So he doesn't even directly answer the question. Just like last week, he didn't directly answer that specific question they asked. He, he throws something else. It's like a curveball. Here it comes, and they miss, right? And so he's like, there's two things about you Sadducees that you're wrong about this, even the basis of this question. First of all, you don't understand the scripture at all. And second, you don't understand God's power. So too bad for you. <laughs> and so it's, it's kind of interesting um, and, and I wanted, related to that answer, they don't understand the scriptures, they don't understand his power. I wanted to look at a couple more verses, um, Leviticus chapter 25. So you're getting some Old Testament here. If you haven't been in the Old Testament for, for a while, it has some pretty great nuggets of truth in there. 
so not only did God have a way of redeeming a man's um, heritage after he died by giving you know his wife to the next um, next brother, he also had that for the land itself. So verse verse uh, twenty three says, "The land moreover shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine." So so even inheriting the land, they were getting something that wasn't theirs. This is God's land, and they were inhabiting it. It goes on, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. And he'll, he'll kind of describe this scenario, but going down into verse 28, he says, but if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee, but at the Jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his property. And so what God had basically established, not only was he taking care of the name of the husband, the name of the sons, then their wives, that they would have an inheritance of children, he was also taking care of his land. And so you'd have a scenario where you're, you're living your best life and everything is against you and you get really poor, so poor that the thing you inherited from your fathers and your grandfathers and your great-grandfathers, you have to sell it. It's like you can't, you can no longer own it. It's, it's too much for you. And you sell this thing that had been your birthright to somebody else. And what a terrible thing to lose something like that, right? That was, that was yours. It was, it was inherently yours because you were the child of your father. And yet in, in Israel, if you had to sell your property for those kinds of things, and a lot of times what they do, they'd sell the property to someone else who was richer, and then they'd work the land. And the, in working the land, they would have their food. And so they were working their land, but it belonged to somebody else. But God was like, you, if you have to sell your land for this kind of reason, you got so poor that you had to, you have to make a way for the person to be able to buy their property back for themselves. And even if they can't ever get to the point where they can afford to buy it back for themselves, every 50 years, there's an opportunity that the land goes back to the people. And he has, he has these kinds of things for in cities, like the Levites got you know, homes in cities, they were permanently theirs, they could never give them away. You know, if you had a home outside in the country, it was considered like the, the land, so you got it back at the end of 50 years. And it was all based on this whole Sabbath idea. So, it, you know, after the seventh day, God rests from all his work at creation, right? Um, he also set it up in the land when the, Israel was occupying it. Every seven years, you didn't farm. You let it go fallow. And so he's like, in my blessing on the sixth year, I will give you three, three years of harvest so you'll be able to eat during the sixth year. You'll be able to eat during the seventh year when you don't farm, and you'll be able to eat again on the eighth year when you have to plant again because you're going to need the food. And this will be my blessing on you if you follow my ways. And so you have this seven-year rest for the land. And then he's like, every seven, seven years, 49 years, you'll have a, another year-long rest. And then the following year is the year of Jubilee when all the land goes back the way it used to to the people that owned it before. Wouldn't that be kind of a cool socio-political system to, to live in a country where, you know, the, the Van Treeses lived in Tennessee and we got our land back or whatever. I, I'm not saying that I'm from Tennessee or anything, but, but like, let's say that state was the Tennessee state, it was the, the Tennesseans. And uh, they all had to sell Tennessee to Texas because they got so poor, but at the end of 50 years, Texas had to give Tennessee back to the Tennesseans. Wouldn't, what, a, what a kind of a system is that, right? And, and the whole purpose of that was God's interest was for his people's health and for the land's health. And you'll see at the, at the Babylonian exile when Israel is wiped out and, and they're taken captive to Babylon, he'll declare um, in Second Chronicles, the very end, basically, the last chapter, the last couple of verses, that the land lay fallow for 70 years. For all of the seventh years that they didn't not farm the land, for 490 years, 70 years of captivity outside of Israel where the land restored itself. It's kind of an interesting thing. So God is all about justice and about restoration, about healing, about giving you a heritage in the future, you know, giving your land back to you. And so in this, you know, the Sadducees are looking at this question from a really strict legal perspective, like, da, 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 da. But Jesus is like, you don't understand even why the Leveret marriage was even created in the first place. All of the scripture basically shows that God cares for you. He's trying to set up a situation that you would live in peace with each other. 
you would live right with each other. You would live with justice with each other and that people wouldn't be able to take advantage of each other. And if you lost something, you could get it back. That was the point. It was to show God's graciousness to his people so they could proper, prosper and have an inheritance and a name. And so Jesus is like, you don't even understand the scripture. And then in one of the classic cases of something like this, it's not exactly a lever at marriage, but in Ruth chapter four, in Naomi, um, there's a famine in Israel. She and her husband, um, I'm not gonna say his name is too hard, but <laughs> he, he and her husband go off into to a foreign country because they're so poor. She takes her two sons with her. The two sons marry Moabites, women. Um, pretty soon her husband dies. And there she has her two, but she still has her two sons and her two daughter-in-laws. And then each of the two sons die. And so now this, this mother is totally destitute. She's got two daughter-in-laws. She's too old to get married. And she, she, you know, she's just destitute now. And she basically tells uh, Ruth and her sister, you guys can go back to your families. I have nothing for you anymore. I, there's nothing I can give you. There's nothing I can provide for you and she's gonna go back. Ruth says, where you die, I will die. Where Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And she would not leave Naomi, and they went back to Israel together. And in the course of going back to Israel, get back to the verse here, um, she meets this man named Boaz. And he's, the, he's a close relative of Naomi's, but he's not the closest relative. And so they have this situation where they have a kinsman redeemer. It's a similar to this whole redemption idea in the leveret marriage and the, the land. And it says, um, Ruth basically um, wants to marry, um, sorry, Boaz. <laughs> but, but he's like, I can't do this without, you know, this other person being in the way. If, if I try to do this, then he's gonna take her. So he sets up this situation where, um, this can all be settled. And so in, in Ruth chapter four, verse three, it says, then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to her brother Elimelech. It's a hard name to pronounce, but. So, so I thought to inform you saying, but if, if, if buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know for there is no one but you to redeem it and I am after you. So. Boaz was like the next closest relative who could redeem this land from Naomi. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. So you can have the land, but you get some baggage with it. Not, not that Ruth was baggage, she was very beautiful, I, I, I suspect, because of what the scripture describes. Um, and, and so this, this man's like, okay, I can get the land, but I have to marry this foreign lady. She's not even from Israel, she's from a Moabite. And, and so he goes on, verse six, the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance redeem it for yourself, you may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. So, so in redeeming someone's life by marrying their spouse and, and raising children for them, there was a potential that your name would be gone. Like he, he, he recognized, I would jeopardize my own inheritance for my children and sons and so on. Um, and so there, there was a risk to this. And what Boaz understood is that you know, the value of someone not going extinct. You know, we, we talk about endangered animals and they go extinct, how, how sad it is that the dodo bird doesn't exist anymore, right? That's, that's kind of the idea of these people's names that you could, you could come to the end of your life and have no children and then your name stopped. You know, and that was, that was what Boaz was, when he was marrying Ruth, was doing for her. He, he married Ruth and gave her a son and her name continued. And interestingly enough, her great-grandson's name was David, who became the king of Israel. Isn't that something? Who then was the father who lived in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, son of David, right? And so all of this redemption through the Bible leads to this place where Jesus came into this world. 
But it's interesting about that Boaz understood that his desire was that this Naomi's name would not be blotted out from earth, that her husband's name would not be blotted out and it would be redeemed. And he, he took that and redeemed her name. And then we have this amazing salvation because he took that step. It's pretty cool. And then in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, I wanted to share one other thing. Actually, first, let's go back to Mark really fast. Apologize, I'm kind of navigating here. So back to Mark 12. And so here we have Jesus' response. So he says, you don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand the power of God. And then verse 25. And verse 25 was one of those verses that always troubled me as a kid. Um, I remember, so, so this may be a little childish, but I remember as a little, maybe first grader. I was first grader, kindergarten, almost first grade, living in Bradfield Canal, Alaska. We'd all gone to bed. The lights in the house were out. And I was in one room across the hall from my parents. And I was daydreaming about what heaven would be like. I was just thinking about it. And I was, in my brain, I was dreaming about this field, like, a, like with raised lines where the things were growing and watermelon were growing out of, out of them. And I was thinking, oh, you know, thinking about heaven. And then it, it dawned on me, I don't remember anywhere in scripture where it actually talked about watermelons being in heaven. And I was like, in my, in my little brain, I was just like, there's got to be, there has to be watermelon in heaven, right? There can't be heaven without watermelons. It wouldn't be heaven without watermelons. And I, I ran into my parents' bedroom crying. I was so distraught. Like, I was, mom, mom, are there watermelons in heaven? I don't even know if they were hardly awake when they're answering me. And they're and they like, just so, they were so wise. And I can't remember exactly what they shared with me. But it's like, you know, when we get to heaven, it's going to be so wonderful. We can't even imagine how great it's going to be. So, you know, I'm sure God knows what your heart's like, but just, just realize that how, whatever is in heaven, it's going to be more amazing. You won't even feel bad about whatever you feel like you lost. You know, that was, that was one thing. I was worried about watermelons. But then the other thing, I remember my mom, mom talking about this when she was a little kid, and I remember thinking the same thing. It's like, oh man, this, this next verse rocked my world as a kid who wasn't married yet, right? It's like, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And I was just like, no marriage in heaven? <laughs> oh my goodness. I sure hope the Lord doesn't return before, <laughs> right? Before I can get married and experience marriage. And then, and then what does it become after that? Well, I sure hope the Lord doesn't return until I have some kids because kids are a blessing from the Lord. And then it becomes... I, I really hope that I can see them, you know, raised and grow up and be, and go into their profession. And then it moves on to, I, I sure hope I can see my grandkids and then your great-grandkids. And then you're at the very end of your life, right? If, you, if the Lord blesses you with really long life. And it's like all of these things that you've wanted that are blessings in this world. It's like, you're like, please, Lord, don't come back and tell X, all of these different things, right? Has anybody, am I the only one that does that? Or is there others that were like, there are things that I want to experience before the Lord returns? Uh, am I the only one? <laughs> okay, so, so the, way I, the way I think about this is that you know, God, God created marriage, and it's a wonderful thing. And it was, it was really wonderful in the Garden of Eden, and then Adam and Eve sinned, and that whole marriage thing got more complicated, right? It, it became something different than what it was at the beginning when it was perfect. They, you know, it's, it's like Adam... Eve's going to have pain in childbirth. Wasn't before that, probably. Like her desire is going to be for her husband. He's going to rule over her kind of thing. This relationship, there's going to be conflict in the relationships. And then to Adam, he's like, the ground is going to be difficult to farm. It used to be easy to farm here in the garden, but guess what? It's going to fight you for your whole life by the sweat of your brow. You're going to till the earth and you're going to die and go back into it. And it's like, so our whole relationship with each other and the world changed because of sin. And it's not as wonderful as it was before, but it's still wonderful, right? It's still a blessed thing. It was blessed before sin. It was blessed after sin. It's a blessing. So God has this blessing for us. And so this verse, that, though, that when, when they rise from the dead, all of those seven brothers and his wife, um, or their wives, or their wife, whatever, however you say it, 
When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And basically what he's saying is, you know, you're looking at heaven and trying to understand it from a worldly perspective. This world is created, it's physical, heaven is spiritual. You can't, you can't compare the two to each other. They're not like each other. And, and so if we look at chapter um, Genesis chapter 2, I wanted to talk about the purpose of marriage in the first place. Nope, give me the whole verse there. Sorry about that. My navigation finger is not working so great. <laughs> this time I'll hit full verse if it only read full chapter. Good. Okay. And so chapter 2, verse 18, um, there's this, this story to, during creation of what God was doing. And it says, then the Lord got in. So he created everything, right? He created the light. He's created the sun, the stars, and the moon. It says he created the land and separated it from the water. He created the air and separated it from the ground and the, the water above the, above the air and the water below the, you know, on the ground. And then he created the, the birds and he created the animals and he created the fish and the seas and he created all these things. And the very last thing that he created was Adam, right? He formed him out of the ground. He breathed life into him and you have Adam coming to existence. And in verse 18, it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So here Adam is in the vastness of all of creation with all of the universe around him, with all of the animals and all of the, you know, the creatures. And God, it describes God walking through the garden in the cool of the day, you know, so God's even there. But it says that he's alone. So unlike all the animals that had their mates, Adam was without a mate. And this word helper, just to, to clarify what that means, we, we think of like, okay, dad needs a helper, right? So Dad's going to go do something. Well, Dad's the boss. The helper is subordinate, needs to follow along, right? Or you're, you're at work and you're, you're like a craftsperson and you get a helper with you. We kind of think of that like you've got one who's the main and one who's kind of subordinate. They're a helper, right? That's not what this word means. It's, it's, it's a word that actually literally means corresponding to. And so if you, if you study geometry, any people that like geometry here? Okay. So I'm going to try to describe geometry. So you have two lines going out, right, near each other. And then you have a line that crosses over both of the lines. So imagine there's a line between my wrists that go from the cuff of my shirt to the cuff of my shirt. On the outside of the angle, there's an angle out there, right? The corresponding angle is this one, this one to this one. They're next to each other. They have the same function and purpose. They're related to each other. They're not dissimilar from each other. They're just separate from each other, right? So the, this mate that God is creating for is not a subordinate for Adam, like some little, you know, something that he can drag along with him. This is his companion that is going to be like him, is going to have the same form as him, who's going to work with him. And the, the purpose that Adam has is going to be the purpose that this mate is going to have. They're to do life together. And the, the ironic thing is when God creates Eve, says he takes her, takes the rib out of Adam and makes Eve, right? He said, they become two separate flesh, but in marriage it says they become one flesh again, which is kind of an ironic thing. I consider it an ironic thing in this group, but it's pretty beautiful. So. So, so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So in all of creation, all of this naming that he does, nothing in creation is suitable for him as a person. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, and this is where marriage came from, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So what was the purpose of marriage in the beginning before everything else happened? Companionship. It wasn't good for the man to be alone, right? 
it was good for him to have a companion, to have someone who was beside him, to work with him. So the original intent of marriage was for this companionship. And then, yeah, so, so companionship. So it, there wasn't just to have children, right? The children was part of being a companion. You, you would have children. That was the blessing the Lord would give you. But your, the first point of marriage was companionship. That was, that was kind of what I wanted to share with that. Related to, we're going to go back to Mark. Um, and I'll try to tie it back into that. Mark chapter 12. So when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So if the purpose of marriage was companionship because it wasn't good for the man to be alone, what is heaven going to be like? It's it's different than this creation, right? We're not going to be alone. The need to have children is not going to be there. The need to fill the land is not going to be there. The the um, the separation that we each of us have from each other is not going to be there, you know. So so each of us has varying levels of friendships with different people in the room, and what's that based on? It's like proximity and time, right? As you as you're close to someone, you spend more time with them, with them, you get to know them better, and you have a more deep and intimate relationship with that person than with someone who maybe you see just on occasion. In heaven, did you realize that that whole thing is going to be gone? That, it's not like you're going to have to build up friendships with different people to get to know them. It's like, and I, I related to Corinthians, it says, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. For now we know in part, but then we shall know even as also we are known. And so it, like our knowledge of what's going on, it's, it can be compared to a really foggy mirror that you're looking in. You can barely see an image through it or through some glass that's so thick that you can barely see what's on the other side. That's what this world is like. Heaven is not going to be like this world where it's hard to see through. It's going to be like everything's clear and open. The The sin of this world is going to be gone. We're going to be changed to be spiritual people instead of physical where everything's trapped in my own brain. I don't know what's going on in anybody else's brain. I don't know what anyone else is thinking, but in heaven I can imagine a lot of that spatial things that are part of this world are going to stop existing. It's like we're going to have a different physics than we have in this world, right? And so then the, the next question, though, related to the power of God, he says, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So that's a passage related to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where God you know, came down and spoke to Moses in that bush. And, and Jesus relating, you, you guys are mistaken that the five books of the law don't talk about the resurrection. What was God meaning when he said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I'm the God of dust? <laughs> like I promised to be their God and protect them from all of life, and there's the dust of their bones? No, when he declared that I am the God of Abraham, Abraham was still alive. He may have physically died, but his spirit was still alive, and God was still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his prodigy that came after him. Um, and, and so Jesus is relating this fact. He's not the God of the dead, right? What power does God have if that's all he is, is that during our life, he's our God, and then we turn into dust afterwards, and then there's nothing else. And one of the beautiful things about the resurrection is that it has the power over death. We have death as a real result of sin in this world. The sin came into the world. We die now. Adam, Adam, you're going to till the ground. You're going to die. All of us, if the Lord doesn't return, guess what get, happens to our bodies? They don't keep getting better, right? <laughs> our bodies, like, I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm almost 50. I'm getting really close. Every year, it's getting harder to try to move, you know. <laughs> in, in, in 40 years, I'll be 90 if I live that long, right? What's my body going to be like? Probably doesn't look like this in 40 years. <laughs> it wouldn't it be great if at 21, when your body still seems to be becoming more powerful and beautiful and strong, that it just kept going like that for 60 or 70 years more? Wonderful, right? I mean, that would be. That, but that's not how it is. In this world, 
because of sin, because of death, we are degrading towards that. And so as believers, though, we have this hope in the resurrection. Someday, this body is going to be taken over. I like the passage, Romans chapter 8, 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and does he dwell in you? If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've asked him into your heart, he dwells inside of you. If, if God's spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So that's a promise from God's word, right? That's something you can take to the bank. You can be watching your body fall apart as you get older. And if you're really young, wait for it, it'll happen. Give yourself 20, 30 years. You can be watching your body going downhill towards the grave, inevitably towards the grave, and realize God's spirit dwells in me. God's spirit raised Jesus from the grave. Guess what happens to my body at the end of this life? God is going to raise it from the dead. And I'm going to be back to life again. And, you know, in the early church, this was something they struggled with. You know, you have the, the apostles going around preaching the gospel in the different places. And you have people becoming Christians. And, and, they, and they serve the Lord for decades and decades. And all of a sudden, in their church, the first people that started believing in the Lord start to die. And more and more and more people start to die. And, and these early Christians, are one, they, they thought the Lord was going to come back much sooner. The, the eminence of the Lord's return to them was like probably during our lifetime. Probably within the first 70 years after Jesus died, we're expecting the Lord to come back. But the people in their church, the, strong, the ones who were first the oldest, they're dying and dying and dying. And they started to wonder, what, what is this faith that we believe in? What is this, what's going on, this this is kind of a scary thing, right? That is there really a resurrection? Is there really hope? What are we, what are we living for? And so one of the passages, and, and this is a passage that I, I really kind of enjoy where, where Paul is correcting the Corinthian church about the resurrection. Um, they had some weird, weird ideas about what the resurrection meant. They kind of had the idea that we are already in heaven right now because we're in Christ. We, we have all these spiritual gifts, therefore we're already experiencing heaven, so it doesn't really matter what we do with our body right now, we can do whatever we want because we're already participating in heaven. And so Paul has to correct them on a number of errors, but one of them is related to what the resurrection was like. And I, I like how this is described. And so I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. And just think about what the scripture is talking about here. He kind of relates it back to some of the creation things. And so, so, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. <laughs> so, so somewhere in this question, Paul finds this to be like, are you crazy? What kind of a question are you asking? Don't you understand the elementary things of the gospel yet? No, let me explain it to you. So you fool. That which, was, which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but of bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So he's kind of given an analogy of seed. Like the seed is basically like a hard, dead thing, right? It looks pretty dead. In fact, they've found like corn in the pyramids several thousand years old. And they've been able to plant them and they grow. They're just a dead little seed. Something inside of the seed has the ability to come back to life again, right? So the seed's dried up. It's, it doesn't look like it should grow. You plant it, it grows. But God gives it a body just as he wished into earth and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. So you look at the animals, the different, there's different kinds of animals, right? Birds are totally different than fish. And fish are different than the creatures that walk on the, on the land, right? And the birds are different than the things that walk on the land. And we're different than all of those. And so just like that, um, he goes on verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. So there's a contrast here. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from stars in glory. So even, even the stars have different brightness. So Paul's saying, look at, look at all of these things around you. You're looking at the world and you're trying to understand this resurrection thing. Even in the world, there's dis differences between things. And you should understand that there's going to be a difference between our physical body 
and the one to come. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so, isn't that kind of a cool thing? You know, when you look at the end of our lives, um, when we pass out of this life, it isn't always the prettiest experience, right? Just if you've, if you've been there before, you know it's not like, like, oh, wow, that looks so wonderful. That looked like it was great to experience. I'm, I sure hope I get to die someday, you know? <laughs> it's, unfortunately, death is not the, it's like you're at the weakest point. You're at the most helpless place. You're at the place where you're the most struggling to survive, and you can't and you pass on. It's like, and, and, and some of the things that happen during that time are just not things you want to talk about. They're not pretty, they're not, they're just, we don't even want to really think about them. All of us hope we die in our sleep peacefully. Like what is, hopefully that's peaceful, right? <laughs> no, I haven't died yet, so I don't know what that's gonna be feel like if, if you die in your sleep, but hopefully. But on the contrast of all of these things that death is like, is the resurrected person. We die and it's so awful. The experience is not a good experience. The resurrection is the complete opposite. Where there was weakness, now it's power. Where you were mortal and flesh, now it's immortality and spirit. And we're still the same person, but we've changed dynamically. And then I wanted to, the last passage of scripture, I know I've given you a lot, so I hope you're doing okay. Take a breath. Okay, we're, we're at the finish line. The, the music team's gonna get ready pretty quick here. So I'm gonna, we're gonna finish with the, going through verse 50 here it's in the same place, Corinthians. Now I say this, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. I love mysteries. Mysteries are awesome. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we all will be changed. So guess what? There's hope for some of us here. Maybe some of some, right? Maybe all. When the Lord returns, not everybody is going to have died first. There's going to be a point where Jesus comes back to this earth and he says, not all of us are going to die necessarily. So here's the mystery. Not all will sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Looking forward to that day? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And if you've ever experienced death, you know both of those things feel like they're there. And it hurts afterwards, right? But there's going to be a day, and it's coming. We don't know when it's going to be. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be a thousand years from now, I don't know. There is coming a day when death is going to be swallowed up. It's going to cease to exist. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? And then he goes on and says, the sting of death is sin. Sin is what caused death, right? And the power of sin is the law. And so when you know what's wrong and you're told, don't do that, guess what you immediately want to do? It's like, if you didn't tell me there was an elephant in the corner of the room, I wouldn't have even looked over there, right? (laughs) So it's like, as soon as you know there's the wrong, all of a sudden you're accountable for what you know and your heart, there's so much power to sin in knowing what's wrong. It's like our heart's desire seems to be to go towards things we shouldn't go. Uh, If that were the end of it, it would be a very frustrating life. I love that. This is one of my favorite verses, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Oh, death, where's your, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? We still struggle with doing what's right, but, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And look, guess what we have to look forward to? Whether we, whether we pass through death 
or whether we're part of those people who get to go up with him in the air, we're going to be changed. We're no longer going to be this flesh and blood and bone thing stuck in one place. I can't fly. I wonder if spirits can fly. Angels can fly, right? We're going to be like the angels in heaven. He doesn't give a lot of definitions of what our activities are going to be like, except that God is going to be the center of everything and we're going to be worshiping him. What a day that will be, right? What a day that will be when like Jesus, I will see and look upon his face. I can't remember the rest of the song right now, but I knew it this morning. (laughs) There's coming a day when we're going to be changed and it's the hope that we have. It's enough hope that when we go through trials in this life, it should give us hope. There's a lot of tough stuff we go through, right? And we're going to go through some more. But we have this to look forward to. There's, There's stinging in life. There's pain in life. We have something good to look forward to. There's a victory that's coming for us. There's a victory that's in Jesus Christ. There's this victory that gives us hope over everything else that Jesus is going to come. And he cares for each one of us personally and individually, right? That's what he was doing in the law. That's what he was trying to set up for Israel. Treat each other right. Be fair to each other. Give justice to your neighbor. Provide justice to the orphan and the widow. Care for each other. And in Jesus Christ, he brought it all to love your neighbor as yourself. We love each other. And that's what God has put us here for, is to just really love on each other, because it's a hard life. I have to admit, there's been some times in my life where it was really just hard. And uh, wondering how you're just going to survive the next day. You're just getting thank you, Venard. But there's a victory that's coming, and I want us to think about that. So worship team, if you would join us. Lord, as we close this service, as we go into a song of worship, we just pray that you would comfort our hurting hearts, Lord. We know this question was a question to try to trip you up. It was about the resurrection, but you shared so much more that the resurrection is your power. It's a restoration of relationship. It's a reversing of this brokenness that was caused by sin in this world. And I pray, Lord, that your comfort would rest upon our hearts and our lives, that the peace of your spirit would dwell within us and surround us. I pray, Lord, that we would each lift each other's arms and help each other, give each other strength to make it day by day. And Lord, that the hope of the resurrection will be front and center in our minds as we go through this world, that everything else diminishes in comparison to the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. We ask that in Jesus' name.